Welcome to the Plain Ordinary Dragon Podcast. If you've been here before, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here. And for everyone, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time that you spend with us. You know, time is the most precious resource we have. And the fact that you choose to spend some of yours with us is humbling. And we appreciate it. And we never take it for granted. Now, a little bit of housekeeping before we get started with today's episode. Uh, if you haven't joined the newsletter yet, if you haven't signed up for the newsletter, please do go to plainordinarydragon.com forward slash subscribe. And that will allow you to stay up to date with all of the things that we're doing at Plain Ordinary Dragon. Newsletter comes out once a week, so it won't over overload your inbox. Now, uh, if you want to talk about the episodes with other people, then you can go join the Plain Ordinary Dragon podcast discussion group on Facebook. Uh, if you just want to keep up to date a little bit on our page, you can do that too. There's a Facebook page. Uh, and of course, uh, we're always happy to hear from you anytime that you want to reach out. Today's episode is really exciting because we get to kind of go back and finish out season one and some of the highlights. So we're going to start today with Calliope Pettis, who's a local Alabama artist, and she has done uh, some really, really cool things. I had a hard time editing her podcast for highlights because there were just so many good things. And it's amazing, uh, really, how much wisdom she has at such a young age. You know, we don't really talk about that much on, on the show, but she really uh, has gotten some principles down and some things down that I wish I had when I was much younger. I highly recommend if you haven't had a chance to listen to the whole episode that you go back and do that. And really with any of the guests, because there, there were so many stellar guests, everybody that we interviewed last year uh, on the first season of plain ordinary dragon had great things to say, great nuggets of wisdom. And it, it was a pleasure going back through and listening to them so I could pull out the highlights. I, I didn't actually make a highlight reel the first time around. What I did, uh, I had to go back and listen to every single one of them, and I'm so glad I did. It was so worth my time. But we're going to start with Calliope, and here she starts to uh, talk a little bit about how music came to the forefront of her artistry. I've been a very good student my whole life. I've always known how to work hard, um, not necessarily... For myself but because someone told me to do something and I wanted their approval and I was gonna get it so I was gonna bust my butt <sighs> to to make straight A's and to to do this and that and I found the that maybe the music department was I don't want to say more rigorous by any means it was just a lot of people who took themselves very seriously oh, and mm -hmm. so um, <laughs> I I enjoyed that and I enjoyed music theory because I've always loved math growing up it was one of those things where there's a right answer and I liked that. Um, I never really considered myself a writer or being good at English because I, I always like failed my spelling tests. Mm -hmm. I was a bad speller and I never enjoyed reading, but I'm very good at getting off track, going on tangents. That's great. Tangents See, are awesome. This is my, my creative mind going in like every single direction. Um, the question was school. Yeah, yeah. School was good. Uh, I enjoyed it. I was challenged a lot and I was because I wanted to please people all the time. Um, and then I had this realization actually 
very pivotal point in my life was my first trip to New Orleans. Oh, tell me about it. Um, I was actually in the process of rehearsing for the Magic Flute at Montevallo, and I wasn't enjoying the rehearsal process by any means. And, and I always told myself, even when I was a kid, doing community theater, it's like, if I ever feel like, ugh, I have to go to rehearsal, it's not what I should be doing. I think you should enjoy the process no matter what. So I was starting to feel a little bit of resentment in this, you know, magic flute rehearsal. Um, then I went to New Orleans for my sister's bachelorette party. And to see the street musicians and to see everyday people um, getting together and not not judging each other, not holding themselves to this high musical standard where there's a right and a wrong and just really enjoying themselves and seeing people of all ages and of all ethnicities and all walks of life getting together to make this music and then getting together to enjoy this music. It was like, this, this is what I'm meant to be doing. It's human and it's, it's simple and beauty is, is simple. I think, yeah. <laughs> it sounds to me like you're talking about connection. I found that the, the music I was pursuing at the time was, was very high-minded and exclusive, and I, I don't ever want creativity to feel like that. I don't want creativity to feel like that either. It shouldn't be exclusive. It should be inclusive. That's a really great point that she made there. Now, she's going to tell us a little bit about how she follows her intuition or the universe or the breadcrumbs, as she puts it, uh, to find her way in the world, find what she wants to be doing or needs to be doing or, or where she's supposed to be. I think there's some insightful stuff in here too. Um, so what are you doing these days? What am I doing these days? Um, <laughs> honestly, I feel like God or the universe or whatever you want to call it just keeps dropping these little breadcrumbs in front of me. And I just keep following those opportunities. And I, you know, I know what I love. I know what skills I'm working to develop. I know what my gifts are and how to maybe make all of that work together. I love the live action type performance. And um, these days, anytime I play a gig, I try to leave um, at least, you know, a third of the time open for like audience participation and collaboration. I, um, but I like to pass the mic around and encourage other people to feel heard. Teaching is not a gift I've been given. It's a skill that I've been working very hard to develop. Um, but I think, I think it's important. If you really, truly love what you do, and it really, truly brings you life and light and joy, wouldn't you want to share it with other people? Wouldn't you want to enable others to create as well? So that's, I'm trying to mix, I feel like my gift is as a performer. The one thing I've never questioned about myself is as a performer. Um, I don't always really feel like a musician or, or a musical theater character or this or that, but I know I'm meant to perform. And if I can perform and have fun and invite other people to do a little bit of the same, I feel like I'm satisfying that, that need to um, share, share joy. Um, you know, not just give a man a fish, teach him how to fish kind of thing. Up next, I asked Calliope about her process and how she writes songs and creates art. And this is uh, one of the ways that she explained it. And I love this particular 
avenue that she uses or this particular methodology that she uses to create. And I find it fascinating. I think it is true. Sometimes this is exactly the way that I create. You're messy, you're messy, you're messy until you're not. My other favorite way to write a song is to straight up improvise. I'll hit record on my phone or I have a little Zoom mic also and um, just play or sing something I've never never sung or played before and sing along to it. And I got that idea actually from this gentleman. It was my final semester at Montevallo and there was this gentleman, Amit Weimer, traveling from Israel. And he was a composer and he played his pieces and then talked in between each piece. And at the end, I was like, I love your creativity. He grew up in um, Jerusalem. And so he, you know, Jerusalem is a holy Mecca for so many different religious people. And so he grew up seeing this singular place from a million different angles. And he felt like that all influenced him to create. And so he was like, don't ever create and think that it has to be a certain way. He's like, whatever comes to existence through you, through your being, is a culmination of all of these perspectives that you have. And don't shut them out thinking that you have to be a certain way. Just just create. And what's meant to come out will come out. So he said, the way he composes is that he'll go and do this improvisational thing. And he'll set a recorder and he'll set a timer for 30 minutes. And he will not stop playing for 30 minutes. And he said, he's like, something magical always happens around 17 minutes. And I think that's true. A lot of my songs have come out of improvisations. And part of my, I guess, discipline is not only making those recordings, but listening back to them. And I try to do that, you know, three or four times a week. But in reality, I probably only do it once or twice. Because <laughs> listening back is the hard part. Because sometimes it's painful. It's like, ooh, I was improvising, obviously, because that was bad. <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to hear. So it came out like, ah, or something. <laughs> well, we're almost done with the highlights from Calliope's episode. And the next piece is pretty important. In fact, there, there are two more segments that we're going to highlight from Calliope's episode. And they're two of my favorites from the show. Next, she's going to talk about something that is near and dear to my heart, which is being vulnerable, being open, asking for help, not being the person that knows everything or pretends to know everything or thinks they know everything or can get along without anybody else. But what she is going to talk about here is how that's something that she's learning to do more of. And it's something we all need to do more of is be more vulnerable and ask for help when we need it. It is really, really powerful. I need to learn how to ask for help. Even though I'm like a one woman show with my loop pedal and this, you know, this theatrical thing I'd like to create with all these characters, I need to learn how to ask for help from people that are going to tell me the truth. So I've got, you know, thick enough skin. Uh, I may be a people pleaser, but I'm not used to people pleasing me. So I'm, I want, I'm hungry for that feedback and I'm learning how to ask for help polishing these, these things up. And, you know, nothing, one thing I learned from theater and choir is that 
nothing worth doing is done alone. It's hard to trust other people, but it's humbling and it's incredible and it's important because that's all we have is each other really at the end of the day. Your your human relationships and and whatever knowledge you've you've gained from whatever education you have and I'm not talking about formal education. I think you know, people ask me, oh, are you a student? Is that why you live in Montevallo? And I said, no, I'm a student of life. Like, I'm always learning. I think every single human being on this planet has wisdom from the experiences they've gone through. Uh, you know, children, elderly, you know, no matter what, I think everyone's wise. And I. this is why I love playing Ordinary Dragons is because you sit here and you have these conversations with people that I crave, I want to have conversations like this every time I interact with someone. People are so sheltered and they don't want to ask for help and they don't want to ask to feel heard. And that's, that breaks my heart. Yeah. Well, people don't realize that vulnerability is a strength. She's right. Vulnerability is a strength. And not only is it a strength, it is one of the most powerful things that we have available to us to connect and bond with other people. This brings us to the final uh, highlight from Calliope's episode, and it was actually the intro to the episode itself. It's one of my favorite quotes, and so let's listen. You don't have to be incredible to be effective, and I think so many people, everyone's a creative being. We just forget that we are creative beings sometimes because we get wrapped up in that perfection or comparing ourselves. and We lose the eight-year-old. Yeah, we lose the eight-year-old. Some really, really good stuff from Calliope. And Calliope was very instrumental in this next guest. In fact, she was the one that introduced me to Gabriel Akins. You know, when we sat down to do this podcast interview, uh, I had really no relationship with him. Uh, He had come out to go ahead and be on the podcast, and I really appreciated that. Calliope said, hey, you should should check this guy out, and she put us in contact, and... it's one of my favorite episodes because I learned so much. Gabriel is like a bit of a philosopher, uh, and I really, I really learned a lot, and I really enjoyed listening to what he had to say. And so let's listen to him talk a little bit about uh, communication and challenges from when he was a child. How challenging was that environment for you growing up? You don't know what's, what's not normal. It's just you just know what you grew up with is what's normal. And looking back, some of the difficulties I had were, you know, if somebody didn't know how to communicate, it's not always easy being a kid in that environment because when it comes to knowing what the expectations are, if they're not being communicated, um, that's difficult. But even that's hard to say because that goes back to the environment they grew up in. And and if, if they didn't have tools of communication for whatever reason i don't know you you can't it's hard to ask somebody for something that they don't have mm-hmm. sure it's hard to ask for something that you don't know exists. oh yeah. that you don't know how to ask for and i sure did not as a kid know how to hey can i have some more options i don't <laughs> i don't think i have the tools that i need to participate here but I have I mentioned the communication because not knowing how to communicate or not knowing how to participate in a way that didn't cost me something I didn't want to pay as a kid. I was often in situations where I feel like my vulnerability was obliterated. <laughs> and so in my life that produced in me a hypervigilance with communication and it's only been in the past year and a half that I've been able to 
take that struggle with communicating and representing what I need and just try to be forward about, Hey, here's what I need. And whether or not you're picking up on it or not is something like I can't walk your side of the path for you. I can just show up and say what I need. And if people connect with it, great. If not, these days, I'm like, I don't know that that's about me. As much as I might want to connect with somebody these days, I'm just kind of like, okay, well, we're all trying our best, and this is what it looks like. <laughs> we're all just learning in this thing called life. It's not yeah. as... Uh, <laughs> well, the way we react to things ends up being part of the content of what is happening in the exchange. So if we react to something that brings an element of an interpretation that isn't present and what they're trying to say, well... That's part of what's being fed into the loop now. I very much uh, resonate with what you're saying. So some pretty sage words there, uh, especially about empathy and understanding other people's points of view, perceptions, and things that they're dealing with as well. And, you know, it's, it's hard to ask for things you don't know how to ask for. And that is really an important concept when we start talking about looking at how people view the world and interact with one another. Now this next clip, uh, I'll set it up just a little bit. Uh, Gabriel was talking about a song that he had written and how it kind of correlated to the conversation that we were having. And so it goes through and he talks a little bit about how it all comes together and being known and all of the challenges that can come from that and the experiences that can come from that. Uh, it, it, it really is insightful. The song kind of works through that. I've, I've done a lot trying to be known and it's, it's hard to take your questions of wanting to be known by other people to other people who have their own pain. And so it starts kind of like the story I just told you, uh, my folks had their own lot, three boys, a roof and table, did the best they knew how and often as able. But they were kids too once, and bills don't feel. Some things won't wait for your wounds to heal. So it's it's me in this perspective that we're talking about, trying my best to look back and say something adequate about, yeah, the bills really don't care about how you felt when this happened to you. The bills want to be paid. They don't care. They don't. The light bill is going to go off if it doesn't get paid. The heat bill is going to go off if it doesn't get paid. The grocery bill, just, it, just, it just stops. Yep. The groceries stop when they don't get paid. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, there is, a, there is a reality to surviving that takes center stage sometimes. You know, and it's difficult because I know that can come across as maybe um, devoid of feelings. But me saying it doesn't care is not at all saying that you're hurts and pains don't matter it, it's actually me to stepping back and going if you're living in a reality where there's survival should you have an expectation that healing wounds is happening here and the answer i think is i'm not sure about that so when i look at my own wounds that i'm trying to heal from and i ask myself well why did this happen to me or did it have to be that way like why why are you punishing me for what you went through mm -hmm. the question's only being pushed back a generation why did mom and dad have the pain that their parents went through be spread on them instead of healing? I don't have the answer to this question. And so, yeah, I certainly want to point out that saying the bills don't feel is not like, well, tough kitty paws, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. 
it's actually part of the course of the song is uh you know stop showing your heart to people who don't know your heartaches inside you from trying to be known it's like I can take my identity and my wanting to connect, which are all important things to sort through. But if you take that to people who are in a survival cycle, you might be looking for something that people in survival cannot give you. Frustration with someone else is a higher vibration than blame and being stuck in a moment where you don't know what to do. So frustration's a higher vibration than blame and anger is a higher vibration than frustration and so it it, interestingly enough some of what's going on there is saying if you taking action to do something that works better for you means you have to say there's not room for me here i accept that and that's none of that's easy sorry (laughs) i'm just saying one of the reasons why that uh taking back your i guess your power uh and getting angry about your situation is it's different than just sitting still you're actually when you're angry about the way things are you tend to be in a pattern of movement in another direction so like fire away it's almost like okay if that's movement for you all right right i'll pay a little bit sometimes supporting your friends family and loved ones requires you to understand that they may not be able to give what you think they can give. And that was one of the things we were talking about when, when Gabriel mentioned fire away, we were talking about the Dawes song where they say, if you need someone to walk away from fire away. And that is such an insightful thing to be able to say, look, I understand you're going through some stuff and maybe I need to support you in a way that doesn't really feel good to me, but I know that it's going to help you. So next, Gabriel talks a little bit about the culture war and some of the challenges that we face when we make decisions in our own life to take back power for ourselves, to be strong for ourselves, to give ourselves self-love, which is so very important. And so here he talks a little bit about how he's been able to deal with that particular issue. I was going to say there's one thing about that uh, people talking about truth that I wanted to add. I found the best thing I can say when people ask me what I think is I need to tell the story of my experience just to succinct. Hey, I hear you want to know what I think about that, but it's important for me that you know I tend to be punished when I engage in these conversations because the culture war is so severe that people do things with their ideas about what you think, and they're they're organizing me according to their value structure with that bullet point or that word. And so my feed forward has been, hey, I'm happy to have the conversation with you, but it's important that I let you know I've I've been punished in the past trying to have conversations like this. That may not be what you're trying to do, but I may invite myself away from this if I start feeling like I'm being punished. And that is a really great way to deal with these types of situations. Understand that You have to do what's best for you and you can walk away from situations and from conversations and from things that people feel like they require from you if it means that you are going to have to suffer for that. And so 
that's a really, really great point. Now, next, we're going to talk a little bit about what I like to call the mirror that we hold up. And we are talking about how just because I like something doesn't mean you have to like something. That we can have differences, and it's okay to believe different things, to see things differently, to have different perspectives and and paradigms, uh, especially if we're looking to find the best way that we can to interface with the world around us. My friend Sarah Sarah Eager and I were talking about this. When I say I like this, I don't mean you have to do that. I was trying to say I like this. (laughs) I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. I'm saying (laughs) this is how I'm going to live my life. I didn't mean you need to wear these clothes or, or you need to drink this. I'm saying I want to do that. (laughs) I'm sorry. I wasn't clear. I'll try again. And here we try to get to the root of it a little bit more. Why do we want everyone to feel the same way? Because we want to feel connected as best we can. I like you're getting to the motivation of some of this, because if we don't look at the motivations for why somebody would even care about that, we might miss that they want to connect. And I don't have a personal ambition to punish people for wanting to connect. I don't either. Like, I, I, as a matter of fact, I want to encourage that as much as possible. <laughs> I think we're, I think we're more the same than we are different. And the the challenge, I think, a lot of times is that we look at these differences, and we say that they're they're chasms that can't be crossed. That you, you're them, and and we're us, and there's there's a problem between us. But there doesn't have to be. We can get past that if we're willing to, to do it. I mean, and that's that's part of the reason why this podcast exists at all is because connection is so important and understanding that it's not just the Steve Jobs and the Sam Waltons of the world that do great things. It's people like you that do great things. It's people like me that do. We all do great things, but we just have to be willing to take a look at what we do. And so I think it's connection. I think connection is where why we have those kinds of uh, tug of wars and, and, and fights and jabs and, and whatnot because we're, we're all trying to connect. Ultimately, it comes down to connection with one another, with our friends, with our society, with other human beings. And we're going to move ahead to, we've only got a couple clips left. Here he's going to explain a little bit about how his out, time in the outdoors and learning how to deal with uh, surviving in the outdoors helped him learn how to survive in day-to-day life and the skills that it gave him and the confidence it gave him to move forward in his life. And, you know, when you said reprieve in high school, I was really glad you said that. Backpacking in my life was a place to go learn how to feel when the storm of life was happening. Like, so with backpacking, I learned how to be, how to do well in the elements. The first year I went backpacking, I I didn't listen to anything I was told. Really? (laughs) Hey, Gabe, don't wear, don't wear cotton when you're hiking in the snow because you'll sweat and it'll get wet or the snow will make it wet and cotton doesn't dry really fast. It just keeps the water. And when the wind blows on, it makes you cold. Your body can't warm it up as fast as the wind can cool it down. I didn't listen to any of that. So how was that first year? It was awful. I'll bet. <laughs> it was awful, but thankfully I was young enough to have some resilience, you know, like a kid mm-hmm. can have. <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't, you, you didn't get broken. Oh, my, not my kid spirit. I was, <laughs> when we were back and we got some dry clothes on, somehow we had some dry clothes to wear. <laughs> I don't know how I managed to listen to that part about having to change clothes, but... 
when I'm back in my sleeping bag, dry clothes and a little bit of food in my stomach and oh man, I forget immediately how awful it was, but the next year was different. That was wonderful. Like this year taught me they weren't just those those men weren't just talking. <laughs> <laughs> they were actually saying something trying to help me and the next year was such a good experience. I had everything I needed. I planned for it and uh, living in the elements, you know, cooking in your vestibule, um, with, you know, cooking your food in a vestibule, even if it's storming or uh, a snowstorm or whatever. I don't know why, but for me, that was my first time learning what it's like to go through a storm and be okay. And that actually had an emotional equivalence in my life. Around these people, I learned what it was like to be okay when the weather's not cooperating or when the world's not cooperating. And it's funny, like, looking back on it, it's when I thrived. Like, I thrived when the storm was happening. Mm -hmm. Like, I can take my tent down in a rainstorm and the inside of it still be pretty dry. Oh, yeah. And for whatever reason, just the option of knowing how to do that or how to take care of yourself, even when everything's awful, it's that movement and that contrast I was talking about. It's like, oh man, there are options when it's really awful. You don't have to just sit and focus on how awful it is. There's a mill to be had if I can just manage this well enough. You know, there's a mill I can have. There's some stories once we get dry and in our sleeping bags that will come out just from feeling different. Mm -hmm. um, there's warmth that gets back into your bones after being freezing cold. And all that contrast just produces, I don't know what to say besides some of the most wonderful memories I have. And now he's going to talk about one of my favorite parts of success, failing, failure, and how to look at it and understand how important it is. So between music, luthery, and some photography, I'm almost certain this gig economy will, will work out for me. But I'm in that process of learning and failing right now. And the good news about it is, is I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of failing because I get to learn... I get to have the feedback in my failure and I know exactly what to do with it. I keep approximating toward the goal and I'm going to hit my mark. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I tell you that time working on the car lot, plenty of time to ask myself about whose target do I want to be hitting? And on this side of it all, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm tired of aiming at your target. I would like to aim at my target. And when I miss, it's not because I was aiming at yours. <laughs> I'm, I missed the mark, but every shot counts because you're approximating toward the center. Every shot counts because you're approximating towards the center. Thank you, Gabriel. I really, really appreciated everything that you brought to the podcast. We're going to turn our attention to Bob Marston, uh, a Birmingham original, if you will. Uh, Bob's, again, one of my closest friends here in Birmingham, Alabama. And here he's going to begin to talk about his relationship with music it, from the lens of a relationship with a person. And I guess did what I felt like goes back to where I thought I said earlier, which is how I try to think about it now is like, is that what I have with music is a practice and a relationship. In a relationship, what you what makes relationships good is getting to know each each individual or each party, getting to know the other party, and supporting that party, striving for growth as an individual, uh, allowing, enabling, and supporting the growth of the other. In this case, music is is vast and infinite, so it really doesn't have any. It doesn't need to grow any. 
and it's up to us to bring it about. So, uh, but that's the way I think of it. And that's the first time, Elliot, I've never really even thought about it like this. I remember that moment and that book is somewhere, but that was the first time that I began to get to know who, what music, what makes music, what it is. To just fill in a little bit, if you didn't hear the whole podcast, we were talking about a book that someone had given him and how he was able to study that book and really begin to understand the language of music. We're going to start this next segment, and it's an important one because we talk a little bit about the lingering effects of racism in the South and how that's applied in music, even to this day. A little bit shocking for me. Uh, I really thought that most of it was gone when it comes to some of these uh, areas. Like, I I didn't realize that there are areas where African Americans just don't get to play, and only white folks can, uh, and vice versa. But this is more than that. This is where Bob talks about community and how important community is, and why he feels such a connection to the African-American community. Because uh, they had a, a group that was really accomplished that played a lot of black clubs that was like musicianship, and they were way better than anything I could put together, man. I mean, the singers knew what they were doing. They could harmonize. They could kick off songs. They could sing all kinds of different songs, sing a full range, a high tenor range, you know, high enough. They were good. They could cover tunes well, but they couldn't play some of these sports bars and in the white areas of town. Crazy. Yeah. Well... <laughs> Mississippi, man. I mean, and I, you know, I, I guarantee it's the same thing here in Birmingham. I mean, they're because I, I have friends that do both, and it's one of the things that I aspire to as I'm coming up is to play, is to go over and play the Red Wolf, which is a, a center block blues juke joint in uh, midfield, Powderly, and I want to connect with the other half of Birmingham that 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 most people that look like me don't cross over into, and part of it's it, it's kind of equal parts. Because the people, I want to connect with this community and I want to acknowledge that there is a whole community and be engaged with the whole thing, no matter what that looks like. Because if you try it, it always goes well. It, I mean, even if there's a few jerks or something along the way, it never, it always ultimately goes well until you start maybe threatening some people and then you'll have what you call haters. But that's just part of it. That's not a problem. And sometimes having haters is an indication of success. Well, that's what I'm saying right. is, is you, you, you're, you're getting some traction. Something's actually happening. The other reason I would want to engage with uh, the black community here in Birmingham is that specifically in Birmingham and in general in the Southeast and in the United States, the black community is the source of uh, the majority of the music that I like the most. Whether or not it was actually white people or black people or white people playing the music that I initially got into, but the more I've learned about it, most of the styles that I like were innovated by at least a mixture of black and white people, if not in almost entirely by black people and then co-opted or whatever the word is. What's the word now? Appropriated, which has the, always been the word. I guess we just didn't acknowledge it. Yeah, some pretty powerful stuff there when you when you start to break it down and think about where we still are to this day. Now, next, what's uh, going to happen is Bob is going to start to talk a little bit about how we interact with those around us when we're going through tough times. And I think this is a really powerful segment. It's one of my favorites. Uh, You know, we talk a lot about music and so forth in these podcasts, but sometimes there are jewels that you find that really help you with your journey in life. And I believe this is one of those. 
I don't know if we've established this in this podcast on these episodes yet, but we are our worst with the people we are closest with. Yeah, there's some some definite truth to that. You know, and maybe we're bad to strangers too, but for for me at least, like I, I shared most of my depression and my demons and my anxieties with people, with girlfriends, even more than I showed my family. You know, and in, in a way, you know, because a lot of times those are the people that are encouraging you, you know, your significant others, or, you know, you can do it. And that one of the issues with at least my experience of anxiety and depression and that sort of emotional pathology is that you, the problem is you don't believe you can do it. And so when someone tries to affirm you, you lash out and reject it the same way that you do to criticism. You don't react to positivity or negativity. Well, you just, cause it's just, it's a spiral of, of kind of BS to be honest. I mean, stuff that just isn't, you're making all these assumptions and, and giving weight to these things that maybe don't matter. And it's just kind of all out of alignment and weird. So when somebody tries to deal with it, it is that. And so it's hard to deal with. The depression would come back, but I would have days where I was really positive and like legitimately, like I'd worked at it because that's what you have to do. You, you don't have a positive, grounded emotional experience if you don't work at it. So a lot of times people that are, for me at least, when I'm experiencing depression, it's, it's if I'm like, you got to, depression is what is kind of the entropy or the, the dust of emotional life. And if so, if you're not polishing that grounded feeling, it's going to get dusty, man. You're going to get depressed. That's just kind of how you got to, you got to work at the positive. Positive doesn't just happen. Um, I mean, eventually it can, it really does take on a momentum, but, but if you're used to a depressive momentum, a stagnation type momentum, then it's going to be, you really got to work hard to create this other momentum and get it, get it going. And again, we, we see the experience of going through things coming out to help us understand how to move forward and how to contrast with what we've done in the past. Next, Bob is going to talk about, even though we didn't, we didn't vocalize it like this during the podcast, he's going to talk about moving forward and he's going to talk about how he decided, look, it's time to do something different. Uh, and I really enjoy this section as well because he starts to come out of the challenges that he had uh, in a bad relationship and start to take power in his own life and move forward. The breakup happened and I decided I got to get back out and start singing. I, I can't worry about practicing as much as I was. I need to be focused on, you know, doing something different. And that's what, what's, what's consistently worked in my life is if something isn't working, do something else. Do something else, man. So you've been trying to practice for three years and all you've done is, you know, you found a couple of good teachers. That's really great. You're making some really good progress, but you've also done some really obsessive, depressed, uh, like, anger practicing and it's really weird and you've now lost you know a person that you loved a lot and so let's do something different so how about no practice except for voice every day and we're going to go try to get gigs and try to play and try to be that emotive connected uh social socially talented emotionally intelligent person and do that and he did and it's been really enjoyable to watch bob's journey as one of his friends this is the final clip of, of Bob's episode, and I included his song about Birmingham because, well, it's one of my favorites, and I love it. And so I included it here as the, the final piece of his episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. I think I sometimes try a little too hard, and one of the things that I don't like about my songwriting is it doesn't have enough darkness in it. That song begins to, it just starts to, and there's a few others where I've messed with it a little bit, but I'm usually afraid to open up 
with that level of vulnerability and darkness because I'm afraid that people won't like it. I would rather write something that it's like neater and tidier. And there it is. See, this is what I'm talking about. When you start opening up and really getting real, which will be dark sometimes, it's hard to keep it on message. of a city in beginning not knowing where it's been wondering if magic can overcome sin while I'm walking in my mind
that, ladies and gentlemen, is Bob Marston, a Birmingham original. If you are in the Birmingham, Alabama area, I highly recommend you check out his live shows. Uh, he's as good in person or better than he is on a podcast. Trust me. Now, next up, we have Perry Hayes. Perry and I met uh, when I started to go kayaking uh, with my wife at their outfitting place here in, in Alabama, uh, Big Canoe Creek. We hit it off immediately. It, I, I really, really enjoyed uh, spending time with, with Perry uh, for this interview. I always enjoy spending time with him. Uh, that, their whole family is amazing. And so here Perry is going to tell us a little bit about his transformation from coming out of school, going into technology-based stuff and realizing that he wanted to go a different direction. You went to ITT to do computer-aided drafting. What made, why did you switch from that into the next thing? Uh, well, um, I'm, a, I'm a big um, follower of Tesla, and one of his things that he was always able to do is um, take an exploded view of something that wasn't even designed yet in his mind, take it apart, put it back together, put it away, do other things, bring it back, and fix one little part on that, and then do it again. And I always thought that was a grand skill to have. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and when I saw computer-aided drafting, and I always enjoyed building things, whether it was boats or um, just anything when I was a child. And this kind of meshed with that. And I thought, well, I'll do this. Um, and you're supposed to know what you're going to do at 18, right? That's what the... <laughs> Well, that, that's how they tell us. It's a us. preposterous idea, but that's how we do it now. And so um, I, I tried it. Uh, I didn't really care for it because it flung me into the cubicle world, mm -hmm. which was um, not even a little bit of what I wanted. And so I, I ran the other way as the pendulum swings. Mm -hmm. uh, I joined the military, um, was the National Guard, and I served 12 years for um, the special operations um, of support for them. and enjoyed that also. A lot of good guys, got to see the world, very interesting, uh, but that wasn't what I wanted to do either and at this point people start getting frustrated with you like we started we graduated high school we either went to college and we went or we got a job at some soulless corporation and you must do the same thing and I just felt amiss because I didn't feel like I wanted to do it I love to work mm -hmm. but I didn't want to waste time and that almost seemed hubris to me to waste time if you're there doing something that you don't want to do some aspects that's wasting time sometimes you have to but for a for a life career no it was not for me so I kept searching if you haven't heard Perry's episode, it's really a fun one to listen to. We called it Perry Hayes, the Sojourner, because he mentions that he that's what he is uh, on the full episode. Uh, I highly suggest you check it out. Here uh, we get to one of the fun parts of this show for me, uh, where Perry was using air quotes frequently and talking about it uh, because of some of the alternate uh, viewpoints that he has from the mainstream. The vast majority are blind to, to this. And well, and that's kind of how it happens. They, they, here I, here I go, I do an air <laughs> quotes, the ominous they. Um, but it's, they start brainwashing you at a very young age. And it's true. Um, they call it the amnesia barrier. And, and everyone sort of does it. it for instance, say you, you hold three different subjects um, in your head to all be true. But each one of those are contradictive to, to one another. 
another. People do this all the time, and it's trained to do this. And that amnesia barrier, it almost can almost be thought of like a waffle. This one is totally here by itself. And then this one is here, totally here by itself. And they don't have to work together. But in reality, they do work together, and they have to work together. And if they don't make sense to one another, then they don't make sense. But so then you've got this person that has this dual mindset. Now, he, he can't trust self. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what to think unless told. All these things are also uh, a little by little put into you. They, they don't want a free thinker. Knowledge is not the quest there. It's indoctrination is what it is. And yeah, that sounds cliche, but once you start looking into it, that's exactly what it is. It's it's not for the benefit of us. These factory schools, public education, which is co-work for government education, is gearing to this, whatever, whatever they do, all the changes, it stays on that direct azimuth to enslaving us, whatever they do. So if it was just happenstance and, and they were doing this and they're trying and they fail at this and throw more money at it like a lot of people think and they're just missing the mark, then your shot pattern would be all over the target. But that's not the way it is. They have a very tight shot pattern. And so then you have to understand that that's been engineered. There's logisticians out there and someone from every skill level from the top to the bottom making sure ensuring that this happens on time and to whom we want it to happen to. And the ones and the ones that we don't were selected and um, they're not part of the Commonwealth. Y'all can't hear uh, see the air quotes, but but they're there. A lot of them. They're you, there. They, they, they there. need to be there. They're they're there. <laughs> Rest assured. I asked Perry about why he decided to leave the armed services, you know, how his perspective had changed from when he had gone in. This is what he had to say in regards to his paradigm shift or his, um, his perspective changing. I think when you're young, you're able to either not care or to overlook certain things. And as you get older, um, you know, everything has to filter through those things that you learn, all those presets you set up and you like some and you dislike some. They all have to filter through that. And so when I got to the point where I had so many precepts and and the army started to filter through, I could see, I believe more clearly that that this was a complete and a waste of time. And it's, you, you get one story for the populace here and then you get one story for us and then there's a third at least a third one going on there and it's not what you think and once I found that out I just they can do it without me mm-hmm. I, I can no longer be party to this um, not that anything was egregious or terrible it was just the stories they would tell us the reason we were there are not the real reasons and it's obvious what the real reasons are but if they the media keeps saying a certain thing over and over people just buy it even though it's obviously not true. People buy it. And that's the difference between what was just this propaganda from the media versus what's actually going on. Just a huge disconnect there. But the most striking thing that surprised me was how well they ate. Really? The countrywide, uh, whether you're talking about the sand-blown deserts of the south or the more forested parts of the north, the, as for a third world country versus this first world nation, it was they ate so much better. First of all, there's nothing... GMO. Absolutely nothing. The families have been growing it there for I don't know how long. And they have just the, 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 the beautifulest colors of uh, beans and dates and peppers and rice they grew and grain and the goats and the sheep. And they would have just phenomenal food. And so much of it, it was just like Indiana Jones. Remember Indiana Jones? He has the monkey and he's eating the dates right before the monkey gets poisoned mm-hmm. by the dates. Mm-hmm. We're walking through these and these huge bags of like peppers, like this burlap sap that's sacked that's 
been rolled on the corners and he's just overflowing with food. Well, that's the way it was for just blocks and blocks and blocks. And it was so inexpensive, it was silly. Really? Absolutely. They eat so much better than us. And they were so friendly. The, the people I saw, they were just so friendly. Unless they've been indoctrinated by somebody else. It's like, yeah, because we're an occupying force, right? Mm -hmm. Still, being an occupying force, they were very friendly and uh, just interested to find out well, who you are, what made you tick, what's the difference between you and me. Mm -hmm. And come to find out, there's more similarities than there are differences. And that's pretty much wherever you go. You know, they have children they care about, and if the house gets dirty, they clean it up. You know, they shoe dogs away. And, you know, well, there's a lot of things that are the same. So they were they were friendly even yep. to the to that, that is fat yeah. I, because you would I, I would think that they wouldn't be that you know. Well, I have a, a interesting story to kind of fortify that. Um, so we were in a tower, a watchtower one day, and we had um, a couple of at that point was uh, ING Iraqi National Guard, and we have an interpreter with us. And um, I was telling them that uh, I like to try all these flat breads and olives and dates and this cheese and you know my mouse water and, and um, he's like well I'll, I'll bring you some of course this tar Tarzania thing's going on again so he does he brings me this big cheese platter I think it's made out of a uh, whole goat milk mm -hmm. and this all this unleavened bread so he said keep it in the refrigerator and I did and I ate on it for two or three days and it was absolutely delicious it was kind of like a, a, a non-flavored salty yogurt that was been frothed but it was really good with bread and that's what it was intended for mm -hmm. um, so and it was two or three days it went by and I ran into one of his friends and he said, do you still have that guy's bowl? And I said, yeah, I'm almost finished with it. He goes, well, that's the only bowl his family's got. Like that was it. You know, that's the, and I felt so bad. Oh, so yeah. the next time we went um, on a convoy to a PX, I bought that stainless steel set and brought it to him and gave it to him. And uh, I, I didn't get to talk to that guy ever again. Um, I never saw him again, but his friend said he cried when he gave it to him. He said, this, this is more than, you know, they had four or five, six pots in there and, mm -hmm. and they just absolutely loved it. So, I mean, he went out of his way so much for him, the only pot he had, uh, to give this guy this occupying force in his country. And so I think that's testament, at least to this unnamed individual that I remember, of, um, of them trying, I guess. So um, that's very fascinating to me. Like, that, that is that is incredibly fascinating. And what an amazing story, really. I mean, on both parts. So there is, there seems to be uh, at least a perception of a sentiment against different cultures, different people um, that exists. Uh, we saw it, uh, and it was fairly well accepted after, you know, World War One, World War Two, where we used a lot of slang towards other people, sure. you know. Um, well, even even in some debates in not too, recent, not too long ago, we, we saw some people saying, you know, hey, I, I'm happy that I was able to shoot this, you know, Jap and, right. and so forth. Um, what is your reaction to that type of attitude uh, after seeing what you've seen? I don't think it's innate in most of us, uh, whether whatever race you're talking about. Now, there, there are racial differences and there are cultural differences. Absolutely. And wait till I finish, people, before you crucify me here. <laughs> but it is very difficult to live in a multicultural society for this reason, is that the ominous they will always pit you against the ones that look different than you. Not to say that they're better or you're better or they're worse. That 
has nothing to do with it. If there is a difference, they will find that difference and they will use it as a splinter. They'll exploit it. Yeah, that's exactly what they do. And they and to prove it, look at history. All genocide has run on ethnical lines or religious lines. Every one of them. So they love a multicultural society. Get them in there and then they split them apart. And you can see that now. you got the fake left. Everybody knows it. The fake right. Everybody knows it. And then if you don't own to one of these tribes here, then you're out there in limbo land and you're not doing your due diligence. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the way they kind of phrase this to you. There, there are evil people out there, sure. But I think it's very few. I, I've talked to police officers and in these small towns and they'll tell you who the bad people are. And there's only a few of them. If a town is 10 or 12,000 people, there's only a handful of people that keep doing the same thing over and over that's bad, right? So we know who the bad people are. The vast majority, so what that tells us, the vast majority are doing what they're supposed to. They're not bothering anybody. They're not doing anything. So this, again, I think helps stand up this whole idea that it's it's, it's not innate for us just to hate. And you know, it's it's a hard thing to go to, to, to war with another culture, right? Like, you, how, do, how does that happen? How, how at one point in time does someone in Alabama get up in the morning and say, I'm going to go kill some people in Russia? And what does the Russian guy get? He gets up in the morning and is like, I, I'm going to go kill a bunch of people from Tennessee today. doesn't happen that way. How does it happen? And in looking into it, is it's, it's, it's fascinating and, and evil. And I think that that's part of it. They're always trying to drive a wedge into you and make you feel um, different. And then at any point in time, if they want to villainize that aspect that, that they made you to go into this tribe, they can, they can do that. And when they do that, they pull the rug out from underneath you. And then they can say, see how bad they are? And then, then here we go. And then, then, then the fabrics of society is pulled back and you see what's there and it's hideous. Perry and I don't agree on everything. In fact, we have very differing beliefs and thought processes on a number of things. But one thing we do agree on is we are more the same than we are different. And the powers that be have a tendency to pit us against each other. It's especially in our political arena. You see Democrats versus Republicans. And it's really two wings on the same bird, which is the best illustration about this. We can't fly without the other wing. We have become so divisive in our political thought today, especially in the United States, that we can't see that we are more the same than we are different. And that is one of the beautiful things that I take from what Perry had to say. Well, now we're going to listen to Perry talk about how he kind of found Uh, the niche or niche, I'm never sure how it's supposed to be said, where he found something that really lit him up, that made him happy, and kind of how he discovered it from where he went to where he is now. Most people made me sorrowful, I think, because it seems that they there's so much more there than they're utilizing. Mm-hmm. And not for riches or wealth, just to find something meaningful, truly meaningful for them to do. And then there may be a glimmer of happiness. But that's not what people do, it seems like. It seems like they go after this, this idea of happiness, right, which is elusive to them. And they're always looking for that. So they go through divorce and all these different opiates, and uh, which is a crisis in our country now. 
know, mm-hmm. and 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 they're always well. I don't understand how some people can be happy. We're we're not told things at an early age about ourselves mm-hmm. that that we're very complicated. But we have found a lot of things out that we're not utilizing nowadays. And I think if we did, you would have more time to be mindful and not to think and 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 to look for meaningful tasks and and in there maybe find some happiness. So I, I think I I kind of steered away from people because of that. It seemed like most everyone wanted that but me I didn't want it oh, I didn't want that I didn't know what I wanted but I just stayed away from it so after uh, carpentry and pressure washing um, we um, started thinking about an outfitter mm-hmm. um, here where we live um, on Big Canoe Creek we toyed around with it for as well as soon as we moved here uh, which was uh, about 11 years ago and uh, so one day I just took the chainsaw and started cutting down trees I'm like this is where I'm going to put the outfitter mm-hmm. and so the thought process behind it was I enjoyed kayaking. I enjoyed being home with my family and I enjoyed people who enjoyed and appreciated the outdoors. That genre of people, I have never found evil in them. If they truly like the outdoors, they've, well, it was a really quick way to to figure out someone. Interesting. And so if we follow this path, I've got good people coming. I'm doing what I enjoy and I know my family's safe. So it was like a win-win-win. Yeah. So uh, we tried it. it. It did well enough that we can open up next year and I enjoyed every minute of it. I like being outside. I like sweating. Um, I like talking to different people. And mm-hmm. I, I enjoy looking for that strange subjects that people are not, they've probably never compl- uh, thought about in their whole life. And you broach this at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And the look on their face, like, I don't have time for this. Or, uh, are you crazy? I very much enjoy that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It's, it's not even a bit I'm doing, you know, like right? this P. It's just, it's just what I, it's just what I enjoy doing. And, and, um, and people are fascinating. You know, there's so much talent out there. And and I, and I think that's kind of, I think it's always bothered me that there's so much talent out there that's just going by the wayside because they're at a busy job. Well, I asked Perry when we were doing this interview if there was anything that he wanted to say to the audience, to the folks out there. And this is what he said. And pay close attention because there's some real wisdom in here. Yeah, you're being lied to. It's just about every avenue there is. Government doesn't do what you think it does. Hospitals don't do what you think it does. Cops don't do what you think they do. Look into it. That's it. I, don't believe me. Just just look into it. But it's an important thing. And what we have here is not just in America, but any civilized society is very hard to obtain. And, and we've got it. And let's not tear it down before we figure out why it works, because we're losing that knowledge of how it was put together not one man in a million hardly knows the things that it takes to stand another one up mm-hmm. and just do your research and, and look into it and just don't believe everything that you're told on either side and and find out something that's meaningful to you and if you can't quit your job well don't quit your job but do something meaningful and in there you might just find some happiness you just might find some happiness if you find some purpose well thank you so much for spending some time with us that ends the season one retrospective of Plain Ordinary Dragons podcast. Uh, make sure you come visit us on our website, sign up for the newsletter. If you can write us a review, we really, really appreciate it. It does so much for us. Uh, I know it kind of sounds crazy, but every, every, good review we get especially good reviews every good review we get helps spread the message and helps the podcast do better so if you like what you hear please go out like subscribe write a review all those good things and so i normally leave you with 
my my little saying about plain ordinary dragons and so forth but this time since it was a retrospective i wanted to do it just a little bit different and i'm gonna have calliope help me with it um can we can we say one more thing together of course i (laughs) every time i'm driving and i'm listening to it's like you may be plain you may be ordinary but you're a dragon i love the way you say that (laughs) if can we would it be appropriate to ask if we can say that together on the end of this episode? Or Sure, sure. Okay. Absolutely. Um, uh, okay. Well, you may be plain, plain and you may, you may be, be ordinary, ordinary but, but you're you a dragon. dragon. <laughs> Where are the answers to see? Where are the hopes I need? Answer this for me. Help me.